Happy Thanksgiving. So I'm really grateful and delighted to have ears to hear that beautiful music. We were at a retreat with Elizabeth Lesser at the Omega Institute a few years ago. We, my wife Laura and I, and she had David Wilcox come. I don't know if you know who David Wilcox is. Not the jazz guy, but the balladeer. And she said, this man is the part of the soundtrack of my life. And I thought, isn't that great? We all have a soundtrack for our lives. And Martin is part of the soundtrack of our lives, if we choose. We could say no. Nah. But he is for me. All right. So let's, um, let's do a little bit of spiritual practice. And we're going to... We're going to celebrate that today. And so I just invite you in this moment to connect with a, a feeling, something you're thankful for, you're grateful for. Think about that. Marinate in that. Let that thought drop into your heart. That heart is such an amazing, amazing instrument. And feel the heart expand and relax. The more that we can relax in our spiritual practice, the more we become available to what is seeking us. And let that heart expand. Feel it. Imagine the heart breathing. And so we're going to drop into 30 seconds of silence here. We're going to move into it. But drop in is just to simply suggest we can relax into it in this moment. As we do that, and if you forget and your mind gets busy, just simply bring yourself back to the heart. A heart of gratitude, a heart of unconditional love. And I will time and then I will offer a, a chant and a prayer. All right, here we go. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. So know with me as we come together today, there are no accidents by right of consciousness. We are always right where our beliefs, our sum total of experiences, what we've agreed to, what we have resisted, push, pushed away, whatever it may be, all of that informs us and places us right where it is appropriate for us to be. And so I honor that this day, I honor that and I'm grateful. I'm grateful to have outgrown my 
spiritual training of my origin, which I bless and appreciate because it gave me a foothold into infinite possibility and to create my own meaning of my life. I'm grateful for the information that I share today. I'm grateful for the blessings. I'm grateful for the presence of the divine love and light and that this room is filled with the entities of light because we call them forth all the great saints and teachers here and now. We invoke the highest and most beautiful energy possible for each and every one of us knowing that something beautiful is happening here and now in and through and as each and every one of us if we welcome it. It requires a welcome, it requires a recognition and then it requires a collaboration. So knowing that this collaboration continues to marinate each and every one of us, that something purposeful and beautiful is being done unto us as we come together in this sacred container called community that is alive with transformation, with possibility, with joy, love. I give thanks on this beautiful Thanksgiving day. So much to be grateful for. So thank you for this divine intelligence, for all the great authors and teachers that have influenced me and brought me here. I don't know, but something within me does know. And something within you does know as well. So in great gratitude and appreciation, I release these words and invite you to say with me, and so it is. All righty. So here we go. Please have compassion for me when I show up on my shadow card. If you don't know what the shadow card is, you can find out. But it's simply a process. It's a spiritual practice that we have been uh, stepped into for a number of months now. And Reverend, if you were here last week, Reverend Dr. Gary Simmons spoke of so beautifully. Because this is my shadow card, and soon we'll have our own community shadow card because we did our genogram. And so we're going to have our community shadow card. Where do we go off the rails as a community where we don't want to be? But patterns have been set up, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that because it's so important right now because we are in a terrific and, and, and immense change going on on this planet right now. And I want to identify, I think, when we can have the intelligent conversation about what is going on because I want to understand it, and I want to be part of the answer, part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And that's a challenge because we are inundated with information. I'll speak to that in a moment. So when I show up feeling flawed, lacking, Stupid, alone, self-centered, and fearful. Because this is who I've come here to be. Now I'm on my cue card, which is quantum. Wow, look at that. Look what God did today. Brilliant over generous and creative over whole. Wow. Holy moly. You can barely read that. So I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten qualities today. Love, free, whole. Generous, thank you. Creative and brilliant. Because this is who I've come here to be. So we'll figure that out later. Let's not give that too much energy. Not sure what happened there. So Thanksgiving 2018. So I want to talk about No One Is Against You, which is inspired by Dr. Gary's book called The Eye of the Storm. Our unique Western mythology, which is inspired by a beautiful story by Adashante. Are you familiar with Adashante? Well, you will be today by the end of it. He's an amazing young man that is a teacher, spiritual teacher. And redemptive love is who we are. And then I want to do something with you around Thanksgiving today in that process, a spiritual practice that I think will be rich. So Dr. Holmes said this, if one appears to have failed, he or she should realize that there are no failures in the universe. So failure is no excuse, according to Dr. Holmes. Dr. Holmes. 
I want to share with you, and, and, and part of what inspired that was that in Gary, Dr. Gary's book, The Eye of the Storm, we're using it in, uh, in the, uh, one of my spirit groups right now as a study resource. It's a beautiful, amazing book. And he writes about having this experience with these geotic, geotish Hindu astrologers. They were invited into his experience. And when he was here last week, I asked him about it. And he said it was about 30 years ago when this happened. But basically, Gary sat down, gave him his date of birth, time of birth and location and all that. And they went to work on his thing. And they had him write out five significant events in his life. And these fellows, based on just a little bit of information, pretty much laid out his entire life. And he was just blown away and he was embarrassed because he had been married like five times and that all came up in it. And he was like, he was kind of wobbly thinking, oh my God, just from this, this. And there's many ways that in the foreword of this book it talks about that. See, we live in a mathematically precise universe, order, balance. The universe, that's why karma works because when we go so far off one end, it brings us back. Have you noticed there's been a political shift lately? in the United States, and, and the pendulum has shifted, and it seems like it shifted way out there. Well, it's coming back the other way. This is the way it works. This is the way all of this works. And so to stand in wisdom and clarity rather than to, to become hysterical about it is tough some days because things happen that we may not agree with. But how do we not slip into that resentment and fear and, and, and trepidation? So what Gary said, so as he was getting anxious about what these, these monks were revealing to him, uh, they looked at him. And they said, you need to understand something, sir. No one is against you, not even your own life. No one is against us, not even our own lives. What a beautiful, precious gem. They continued. He said, because he couldn't figure out, what, how do these guys know all this stuff? He said, continuing to sense his uneasiness, the Hindu astrologer said, the future can only be regarded as probabilities floating upon a sea of infinite possibilities. In other words, our astrology, when we were born in place and time and all the things that make up who we are, the country we're born in, the race that we're born in, our moms and dads, brothers and sisters, all of it, some would say, we picked so that we would have the most fruitful experience of being grown and deepened in a way that was not possible otherwise. But what happens is astrology inclines, but it doesn't compel. So we are always, we are always uh, at free will. We always have choice. But it's interesting to look at patterns. So what they said to him was, what makes us so predictable? How can they predict the future? What makes us so predictable? He added is that attention and awareness continually frame, continuously reframe the present moment to the context of past influences. So we have the same, we become predictable because we are, we're in a consciousness based on our past and we keep re replicating it. We keep having the same experience over and over again as they say in the 12 steps, to, to expect different results and continue to, to uh, behave and think and act the same way is, a, is an act of insanity. And so it's not anything mystery, it's just that we have patterns. We show up with certain ingrained patterns and they keep playing themselves out until we start to wake up and do it differently and, be, and, and to, become, to become different. It's not about having, it's about being. So consciousness, they continue, consciousness is poured into the creative framework of attention and awareness to set in motion the forces that organize the manifest universe. If consciousness is in bondage to the past, or if attention is mesmerized according to ingrained patterns of awareness, the future is simply an extension, extended line from here to tomorrow. In other words, we just keep repeating over and over again. A lot of words could be difficult to follow. It's right at the beginning of the book, first chapter, if you're interested in the copy. So that's what makes the future predictable. 
So if we're not changing anything, we're going to have pretty much the same experience, whatever it may be in our lives. And so I want to tell you a story about this young man that I think is quite remarkable. Carl Jung said this first, if our religion is based on redemption, our chief emotions will be fear and trembling. You know people like that? Ernest Holmes tells a story of his dad took him there. He was the youngest of nine boys. They took the horse and cart, and the whole family went to church one Sunday, and they went to different churches because they weren't really tied to any one particular philosophy, but they wanted to explore them all. Ernest read the Christian Bible every day of his life. He said it was one of the most important books he'd ever read. And the minister got up that Sunday, and he said, you are all worms in the dirt, and pray that you get into heaven. And he went on and on for about 45 minutes. And on the way home, they could see his dad, their dad was really, not, was really contemplative about what had happened. And he finally stopped the horse. They were on the dirt road going home. They lived out in the country. And he walked back to them. He got down from the, the seat uh, where he was driving the horse. And he walked back and said, fellas, I just need to tell you. I want you boys to know something. That that minister is a really, really good man. But what he said today is not accurate. None of you are worms in the dirt. He grew up in an environment where there was no shame. He grew up, he was ne they were never shamed. So I want to talk to you about this young man, Adashanti. So that's a picture of Adashanti. Adashanti was born in California. He took Adashanti, which simply means primordial peace. And I want to tell you his story because it ties in so beautifully, and it's one of the things I'm so grateful for on Thanksgiving, of what his, his story was. So he, he, he had an experience that put him on his path, so he teaches and he writes, he's an author, he's written some beautiful books, Falling Into Grace is one of my f favorite books by Adashante. Wonderful man, grew up a Southern California kid, and grew up on this path, started meditating, was 19. And he talks about the, the epidemic of emotional and psychological unworthiness. Dr. Ernest Holmes called it the universal I'm not good enough. Many names for it but it is uniquely powerful and potent in the West, and I'll tell you why. So what comes with this emotional and psychological unworthiness is shame. So shame is different than guilt. Guilt is I did something wrong. I made a mistake, or I lied, or I cheated, whatever it is, I, I wish I hadn't done that, or you wish, you don't care. Shame is I'm wrong. There's something inherently wrong with me. So, we share a deep, as Adashanti says, we share a deep and dark sense of unworthiness, and everyone has his or her own unique experience as a result. When you look out at the world and what's happening right now, you see a lot of that unworthiness playing itself out. This core, this core wound is fundamental. This deep unworthiness is connected to the religious and spiritual traditions of the West in particular, but it's universal. It's, it's across the planet. And this is why the epidemic is it's so prevalent in our culture especially right now. The core wound is universal, but in the Eastern traditions, they have their own story. So in the Eastern, the Buddhist, and the Hindu traditions, they sense it. But see, they, and they ask, why do we suffer? What, what, what about us creates suffering? It creates violence and sadness. So in the East, they, the, they call it the original mistake. They say it's an ignorance, original ignorance rather than original sin. So it's something we don't know. It doesn't make us stupid. We just don't know. We forget. We fall asleep in it. Forgetfulness about our true nature. We forget who and what we are, truly are. Somewhere along the line, we forgot the truth of our existence. It's that simple. In the West, it's not just forgetting. It's a, you know, our mere existence says, you're, just because we're alive, this, this unspoken uh, many times idea that is part of the fabric of our culture says, your, your existence is a declaration that you are wrong. 
So when we go out in the world and we watch what's happening, so many people are, are just living out this, this mythology. We start to feel, this, and so we start to feel this split. And the split has been researched, and it happens when we're little babies and we don't get what we need right away. It's the development of personality. It's a perfect system, although it doesn't feel comfortable. We start to feel separate from one another. We separate from our, one another. All kinds of suffering and sorrow follow because we're separate from one another, from life, from God, from ourselves. So in the West, the sense of separation cuts closer to the bone. It becomes more deeply entrenched in the emotional experience of shame and unworthiness. The mythic stories in the West that are told because we feel separate and estranged from ourselves and others, our story is something is essentially wrong with us starts in, in, in Genesis. What happened in Genesis? Adam and Eve got together. And what happened? They ate the wrong apple from the wrong tree. They know whose fault it was. It was Eve's fault. It was a woman's fault in the story. Right? When we watch this Me Too movement and what's happening right now, we're waking up. Because we need to take the myth with us, integrate it, but we, not, we need to stop fulfilling it. We're here to take care of one another. I mean, it's all this stuff going on with this stuff, and I, you know, I don't know what's true, what's not. I just know that we can do better. We can do better. We're here to, to care for one another. It's that simple. Are we caring for one another? So it comes, it's a deep existential, and existential simply means that we are given the, the opportunity to give our, li- our own life meaning. But what happens with many people, what's going on right now is, see, there's no truth anymore. Everybody's truth is relative. My truth, your truth, it's all relative, there's, but there is truth. But we don't believe that anymore, we don't live that way anymore. So everybody's truth is precious, and, and in fact, my truth, if you're not believing my truth, you're wrong. That's what's happening right now. And, in, uh, and so it's the relative truth of where we are, giving our life meaning. But there is a truth. And the truth is there's one life. There's one power, one source. They will participate with. That life is perfect. That life is God. That life is, is, is beautiful. It's loving intelligence. And that life is mine. That's the ultimate truth. Whatever tradition you come from. Christians believe that if you drill deep with the, with the Christian philosophy. You know, I read a statistic the other day that 70% of Christian men, men that declare themselves Christian, uh, are, 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 have a problem with pornography. Isn't that interesting? They can be so devoted to a, a spiritual path and then struggle so much with their own identity and how they deal with their own sexuality. I mean, it's, not, it's, just, a, it's just a fact. Just saying. So what's missing there? Could it be that this unworthiness has not been resolved? So it's hard to help other people and be productive in the world when we feel unworthy all the time. Because much of what we do then we feel like we're fake. So in the Buddhist or Hindu tradition, the myth is we just fell into a state of ignorance. No big deal, wake up, stop it. Why do so many people go from from the West and find these Eastern traditions? Because it's easier to get there. It's more, we don't have to unravel all this this unworthiness, you still have to. But what a beautiful thing, what a refreshing thing to realize, well, I'm not broken, I'm just ignorant. Doesn't mean I'm stupid, I just don't know. In the West, it's much more personal. Adashanti started his, so uh, let me tell you about Adashanti. That sets up Adashanti's story. So he was 19 years old, he started meditating, and he, he was in his meditation for about four or five years, and he built this little hut in his backyard. He was so committed. I mean, I just love this little guy. So he's in his, his meditation hut. He's, I think he was in, in the, near San Francisco somewhere out in the suburbs. And he's in there, and all of a sudden he has this amazing experience of meditation. Just this download of confidence. It's just like, oh my God, 
I'm just grounded in my divine nature like never before. Because up until that point, he'd been very aggressive. He'd been very much about this, this getting it done. You know, let's get it done. Let's, let's find God and got to go, 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 go. And he said as soon as he had this experience, that all, all that striving and struggle just evaporated. And he thought, wow, this is amazing. And he had been going to a, a, a Buddhist, Zen Buddhist um, monastery for training. And so there was a meditation retreat coming up, and he was all excited because he was going to have this experience. He would take the experience to his meditation retreat because he, what he found with the meditations in the, with the Buddhists is that sometimes they would do 15 hours of, or 15 uh, sessions, not hours, 15 sessions of meditation a day at these retreats. And he found it very uncomfortable, but the, re, the results afterwards were so euphoric. And so he thought, I'm going to go to this meditation retreat. I'm going to have this amazing experience. I'm going to bring this confidence with me like never before. Something's open for me. So he gets to the meditation, and he sits down. They ring the bell to start the meditation, and this, this wave of anxiety and fear comes over him. It's just incredible. He can't stand it. It's fight or flight. And he sat there, and he pushed and pushed, and he couldn't, he couldn't manage it. So he got up, pretended he was going to the restroom, Kept walking, went out, got in his car, went home. And on the way home, he thought, that's it, I'm done. I'm done, I'm a failure. This is never going to work. I blew it. The unworthiness kicks in, right? I'm a mess. There's no hope. And this little voice said to him, go into your backyard to your meditation hut and sit on your mat. And so he he went home, he did that. He lit up a, a stick of incense. He got into his meditation hut. And as he was sitting there, I want to get my, my notes here. Very shortly, something happened. He started to have a complete and absolute revelation. All of a sudden, he described this extraordinary experience of love being poured into him. It felt like a love that was coming down through the top of his head into his body, a liquid light. When Dennis was doing our meditation this morning, he, he did the same process with energy entering the top of his head. I thought, how appropriate, because he and I didn't talk about this at all. I didn't even know he was doing the meditation today, but something did. Something got communicated. So he said, and then he heard this voice again, the same voice that said, go get into your meditation hut. And the voice said, this is how I love you. This is how I love you. And this is how I want you, this is how you shall love everyone and everything. He was, not, he, was, he was not just struck by the voice, because he said it was very biblical. It had this kind of quality that you, you would imagine. But he was overwhelmed by the outpouring of love. Love that is just being infused into me, as he described it. And he felt that everything was redeemed by this love. Redeemed means to restore to its original state. Restore to a state of wholeness. And then he received a call from the head monk at the monastery. And the head monk says, hey, why did you leave? And he says, I don't know. And he says, well, come back. And he said, okay. And he hung the phone up. So then he gets, the next day, he walks back into the meditation. And the monk that was facilitating the retreat, not the one that called him, but the one that was facilitating said, you should never have left. And you should never have come back. And now he says the most amazing thing happened. The most amazing thing happened, he says, when the retreat facilitator said to him, the love that he had experienced, the love within him that he was still alive with didn't budge. And he said, in fact, he felt such a deep sense of appreciation and gratitude and joy because him telling me I shouldn't have left and I shouldn't come back didn't budge the quality of love that had been poured into me. 
And I felt so grateful for him saying what he just said to me because in the past it would trigger him. He didn't get triggered. He didn't lose who he was, what had just downloaded into him. And by him saying that he had said, he had provided a perfect contrast to what I was experiencing. What in the past would have created a woundedness, it did not alter my state. One of the reasons that we brought the Q process here is because I want this for all of us. And when people say things that we get triggered and then we move into our unworthiness, we're just not very good. We're just not operating at full capacity or in joy and aliveness and thanksgiving for life and all of it that brought us to this. Because as Gary said, no one and nothing can be against us. And yet we create up all these stories of meaning making that life's against us. It's not, it's for us. And it's such a beautiful thing and so empowering to know that. So how do we download that love? He was right, he said, the monk was right. He said, I shouldn't have left and I shouldn't have come back. He was absolutely right. But he didn't get triggered by it. He could agree with him. We did the genogram last week. People talked about the regrets. I got to sit in the middle of it and listen to the regrets. I agreed with every regret people said. Like, yeah, I regret that too. People have left, I regret that too. My regret is I was not more skillful when I came here 15, 16 years ago. I have regret about it, but I don't beat myself up. I realize that was part of my learning curve. People come, people go, they will still come and go. But I don't make it my issue. Everyone is free to choose. But when I came here, I taught as many practitioners and as many ministers as I could. I thought that was what I was called to do here. I would train people, and after a while, because life had not transformed beautifully or wonderfully, or I said something to them, or someone else said something, they leave. How can we deal with this in a way that is uh, constructive and creative and transformative so that our relationships become the source of inspiration for transformation? And so to me, this program of mission-centric is revolutionary. And there's so many pieces to it. And there's so much we can grow into. We want this place to thrive, as Gary said. People know when they come in here for the first time, if there's lingering unworthiness within us collectively, and people are here to, to, to experience their, the fullness of spiritual uh, experience, and they sense that, they go right out the door. They know, it doesn't matter what we say to them. They're gonna go right out the door. I didn't come here, now I'm looking for a place that's a little healthier and vibrant, that's not so stuck in its unworthiness. And so with the more with the clean this up, it takes us right where we should be because we have more energy free to be creative, to be the presence, to, to align with infinite possibility. So as Anikshante says, everything that this monk was saying is true from the perspective of what he was saying to me was a gift. It was a gift to experience a quality of love that nothing and nobody can move. I mean, that is, that's beautiful. That's what we are. That is what all the teachers have talked about. This was the beginning of a realization of what redemptive love is. And at the time, he didn't know what to call the experience. There was a specific kind of love that makes you feel healed healed deeply for all the things that you've done that you're not proud of. It is a gift available to all of us. And as Adashante says, it was made available only by him becoming, this is the part you're really not going to like, completely defeated. Completely defeated. It, we, don't, we don't kick the door down. We don't puff ourselves up like we do with everything else to get it done. It requires a grace. It requires a humility. In fact, I want to take you up to a different slide here. Jesus said it this way. 
in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does that one, do you have that on your mirror at home? I'm going to be poor of spirit. What the heck does that mean? Who wants to be poor of spirit, especially in the West, when I'm already fighting this thing about unworthiness, I'm not going to be poor of spirit. What he's talking about is get out of your bloated nothingness, as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, so that the grace that's available to us, we can receive, we can welcome. Because what we realize is that our life is God's life. That's what Jesus was saying. I'm not in this alone. I'm partnering with this divine energetic of loving intelligence and infinite possibility and transformation because that's why I showed up. So I had the right mom and dad and the right brothers and sisters and the right teachers. I had, you know, I mean, a couple of those nuns that I worked with, they, they could have gone three or four rounds of Muhammad Ali and probably put him right on his backside. They were good. Sister John had a right cross. It was incredible. All of it was perfect because it put me right where, I, I, where transformation can happen. But it requires a grace. When we worked with Joe Dispenza in, in Toronto, Joe keeps you tired all the time. He wants to keep you close to the delta state where you almost fall asleep. And it's, sometimes I just fell asleep. I'm like, I, I can't go anymore. After about seven days of it, I'm like, I'm taking a nap. I'm gone. At the last day, Laura said, I kept nudging you to wake up. After about seven nudges, I gave up. But the point is, is that it, it helps put down the walls. It helps, and we're safe. But the grace, that's why meditation is so potent. But we can't get there kicking and screaming and kicking the door down. The soul doesn't respond to that. The soul starts to wake up, the more grace and beauty. So on this beautiful Thanksgiving, so what I want to invite you to do with this beautiful uh, experience I just shared with you, let's, let's, let us in this moment create the experience of the download of this incredible light and love. So I'm going to invite you to just get comfortable. Bill's going to put on a piece of music, and I'm going to share with you some things that I think are universally worthy of our thanksgiving because gratitude is one of the highest feeling tones available to us. And so I'm going to, I want you to imagine... If you'd like to take a peek back at this image, this is an electromagnetic image of how energy circulates around us. And so imagine at the top of your head an opening, knowing that we're grounded and protected in the right place at the right time. Imagine this beautiful heart of yours of unconditional love, guiding and directing, welcoming. And so let's let gratitude invite that download of beautiful healing energy, washing away this idea of unworthiness. What's the next awareness? What's the next opportunity? Something within you knows. I think all of us on this day of Thanksgiving can be grateful for, for a roof over our heads in a warm home. We have plenty of drinkable water.
Imagine as you're sitting, letting these ideas percolate in your heart, this download, just invite a download of energy, of redemptive love, of a welcome, that your body temple is sacred. Gratitude this day that we don't have to go hungry. That we have healthy food available to us and the wisdom to discern. Feel that energy download. Just open yourself to it. Just relax. This loving intelligence knows what it's doing. Gratitude that we can enjoy the small and free pleasures of life. A sunrise. A relaxing walk in nature. A crisp day when the trees are filled with vibrancy and the colors that we have around us now. access to the internet to gather any information that we long to experience or music so readily available inspiration, resources imagine that download of energy and washing away, washing through you in the most appropriate way any aspect of Unworthiness, because it's a mythology. It's just a myth in the West. The only person that didn't experience it was the great teacher Jesus from Nazareth. He didn't get that myth. But in our ignorance of interpreting what he was modeling for us, we took that on. He died for us. So let's feel shame about that. I don't believe he ever intended that. But that was the consciousness at the time. And so we just honor that original ignorance, but it no longer works for us. Gratitude for friends and family, for love, support, kindness, and all the fun they offer. Gratitude for your health. The kindness of people that I've never met before. The kindness that touches my life. Even though I don't have a relationship with someone. People that care deeply about a product or a service or an idea that they share and develop. To go to a new environment and have people be so loving and kind. I'm grateful for the setbacks that have formed me and made me stronger. And I'm grateful I'm alive. So we don't have to earn this love, as Adashante said, when he realized this was unmerited favor, unmerited love. But we do need to know it's available. And we do need to welcome it. And so let us know that it continues to work for us that is always available to us and in any time 
we find appropriate that we can ground ourselves and invite that into our experience as it washes through us and so that we can love our sense of being unworthy we can integrate it but we no longer have to let it trigger us it can't budge us from the love that we are Not so much doing, but allowing. And so let's know this together on this beautiful Thanksgiving. That we are guided and directed in every good way. That there's something powerful and beautiful that's finding its way to us, through us, and as us. There's an intelligence that we are immersed in. And to practice the forgiveness of self and others in such a beautiful way. To, to clean and dissolve the dross of that which is no longer required for our journey open ourselves to infinite possibility to stand at the eye of the storm grounded resourced loved in such a beautiful way on this beautiful Thanksgiving so many gifts that I'm grateful for this day this community is, is so precious and beautiful and it is our opportunity to, to fulfill our soul's collective purpose. To be a beacon of light, a tower of strength, and a fountain of wisdom. As our charter describes. I say yes to that. I say yes to life. And I stand poor in spirit because I know that my life is spirit's life. And what I don't know, something within me does know. For this I give thanks. Together we say, and so it is. Thank you.